1: Welcome, everybody, to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It is early April, so there's a lot going on, um, from choosing your coursework for the coming year to figuring out what you're going to do in terms of where you're going to college, Uh, and then maybe even for those of you who are a little younger thinking about saving for college, and so you're in luck because we're gonna cover all of those things today or pieces of those things today. Um, We're we're definitely gonna be talking about curriculum choices um, and we're gonna start with that, but later on in the show, we're gonna talk about a timeline on saving for college. And we're also gonna talk about those of you who maybe are thinking that you don't love your results and maybe you're gonna wanna reapply to college maybe to some of the same colleges that you just heard from. So we have some thoughts on that. But first, my colleague, Julia Jones, who is a former Brandeis AO and also a former school counselor, so has been on both sides of this issue uh, in the past, is here to talk about AP and IB. Hi, Julia. Hey, Beth, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for joining Mm -hmm. today for this. What I see as a pretty important conversation, and the reason I know it's important is because we get questions about this all the time. (laughs) Yes, um, absolutely. Well, why don't we start with a really quick definition? So people, we do, people, we do get questions about AP classes, IB classes. What are those for people who sure. maybe are less familiar? Sure.
2: They are, in a nutshell, they are basically college-level classes that you're taking in high school. Um, You know, they're they're called AP stands for Advanced Placement, so in the name you can hear that. And in IB is International Baccalaureate, and it basically um, the IB is um, you can there are a couple of different ways that you can follow an IB uh, IB classes. You can do a full diploma, which is a really um, a a sort of really intensive uh, program where you're taking six IB courses. Courses, you're getting college credit. And for both AP and IB courses, you can get college credit in some cases. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I think co- the reason that they're important is really because colleges want to see students take rigorous, uh, rigorous curriculum. It's probably one of the most important factors in in an application. So for uh, for either AP or IB curriculum. It's a standard curriculum and colleges recognize that they are really the most rigorous courses that you can take in high school.
1: Right. right, Exactly. As the high school defines it. Right. And so when schools maybe occasionally, you will find that schools offer both AP and IB. um, And I'm I'm sort of taking us down a different path here, but what are your thoughts if the school offers both? Is one better than the other preferred? I mean,
2: think they're both they're both really highly regarded the ib because it often you know if you're taking it you're often taking it for the ib diploma i do think that you know colleges probably see it maybe a slight a slight tick up um in terms of the the rigor um for that but i think both of them if you're have a choice part of it is also dependent on the subject matter and um uh and even you know does it fit in your schedule of the teacher but i think both are are considered to be really again rigorous uh, pr- uh, curriculum rigorous course Work, uh, proof that you're able to really do college level work, and that's the reasoning
1: behind it. Right, right. And yeah. you know, one more one more thing. I would. I I had a couple of schools when i was at penn where they offered both ap and ib and at one of the schools the ib curriculum they said this is our most rigorous option at the other school they basically said we don't we don't say that ib or ap is more rigorous we allow students to take a mix So it was less common that a student might do the full diploma with the IB and that they would take some AP level courses and some IB level courses, not really the way that the IB is designed, but they were doing that. And in that situation, we didn't have a preference for one over the other because the high school did not uh, have a preference for one over the other. So we kind of took the high school's lead um, in that case. Sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think context of high school is always the most important thing, too. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And and so here is the million dollar question, <laughs> which is the one we get. There are a couple of them. This is probably the yeah. first one. And that is, what is the ideal number to take? <laughs>
2: Right, right, exactly, and I think you know. Again, as with almost always, our answer is it depends, right? Mm-hmm. It's not there's not a magic number. Um, I think that it really ha- you have to find that balance. Um, and We've talked about this in other in other segments, I'm sure, about again, you want to challenge yourself where where it makes sense to do so. Uh, you know, for and and also really know you know some students can handle taking you know five courses, five AP or IB courses, a, you know, a year um, in 11th and 12th grade so some students for whom that might be too much and so you have to find the balance grades are ma- grades matter as well um, and always you focus on your strongest subjects you know if you are you know a real uh, stem focused student math and science are you know are your best subjects they're your favorite subjects that's where you put your um, your your energy if you um, you know if, if those are challenging courses for you maybe the, maybe the AP is going to be too um, too much so I think you know, as always it's, it's gonna it's gonna be vary for the student. It also depends on the schools that you're applying to. Yes. Um, you know, if you're, if you're really shooting for the most selective colleges, if you're looking at the IVs, you know, the expectation and the competition is 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 going to dictate that you really need to be taking as many APs and IB. uh, Courses as you can, because you're competing with students who are doing the full range, um, you know, of of core subjects in those in those areas. Less selective schools are are not going to have that expectation, Um, and so so I think
1: you have to. it, It really depends on the student and the and your list. Right. And, and I guess I would echo that and say that, again, at Penn, uh, draw on that experience, our expectation was that students were going to go to the highest level available in fo- all five major subject areas, math, science, English, history, and foreign language, by the time they graduated. And what that f- less frequently meant was that for the most part, they weren't doing a lot of AP or IB in the early years and yeah. that you might see those start to be added in in junior year or senior year. And I, I mention this because I do sometimes have families feeling like, The student needs to take every single AP that's available, every single IB that's available. And that's not really how to think about it, right? Instead, it's what you were just saying, where you're looking at the individual subject matter, at the progression that makes sense. um, And it's especially important that you're going into the more advanced areas in the areas you want to focus on. But to the last point you made, which was it really depends on the school, yeah. Here's my next question, which is, do all schools expect to see these on a student's transcript?
2: Not, I mean, I think, no. I mean, I think that, you know, I think they're looking to see, you know, not every high school has, you know, has uh, offers a lot of APs. There are high schools that maybe only have, you know, some subjects offered. So so I think that, you know, again, context of the high school, but also the colleges themselves. I think they mm-hmm. they look to see challenge um, in a curriculum that can sometimes be AP courses IB courses honors courses sometimes that means maybe just going an extra year in a in a, lang- a foreign language or um you know or a, a, a subject matter so um it can be taking college level courses too so you know doing perhaps a dual enrollment program which a lot of students uh, do as well so i think it's not if you're not applying to those most selective colleges it's not going to be you know the expectation may be okay it's not not taking the full the full range um, um, and again, there are some some schools that aren't aren't necessarily looking at that, you know, and, and with the same level.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, more than about 80 percent of the colleges in this country are admitting more of students than they're turning away. And for yeah. many of those. Right. Hey, you took your college your college prep courses in high school. Welcome to this institution. And they're not going to expect AP or IB. And so the most important piece of advice, I think, is really just what's going to challenge you but not overwhelm you. And I I think that's
2: Important. I do love the fact, I mean the, the other benefit and I found this myself when I was going into college of you know AP courses I mean the reason for that is that they're they're teaching students how to really you know manage their time and do college level work so yes. there was a reason behind it and it's not just to you know to torture high school students it's really to to get them to learn you know by the time I got to high, to college I I knew what it meant to having taken several APs in 11th and 12th grade I knew how to work I knew how to study and that was something that I think is is, you know, it's important. So even if you can take one AP that, you know, in a subject that you know you can handle, it, it, it'll it'll help you, you know, get to make that transition into college. Right,
1: exactly. I do think that that's an important point. And it may feel like these were created to torture you, but they <laughs> actually were not. Um, right. well, let's, let's talk about the the end point for APs and IBs, which is the exam itself. So We do occasionally see students maybe not taking the class but sitting for the exam. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's the same as taking the class if if you simply sit for the exam?
2: It's not. I mean I think you know the exam is there um, that's what drives the college credit piece. So you know you can contrary to what some students think because I get this question a lot too of like you know when do I submit them and how do I submit them and you don't have to. They're not required. Colleges do not require students to to submit those exam those uh, results. They can sometimes help in the process if you if you do well but um, but I think that it's it's really they're designed to give credit. Taking the exam so that's you're not getting the benefit of having the full course um i think colleges are really looking at again the course that you're taking they recognize it's a universal you know college level highest level class so i think it's it's if if it's if it's a either or scenario take the course not the exam if you know i think ideally you should do both but um but i think if you're if you're really trying to make that that call i think the exam isn't going to help you as much in the the admissions process as as taking the course on your transcript.
1: And actually, that brings me to the next question, which is: Do you have to take the exam? Is that always something that every student must do after they take the course? You don't. I mean, some
2: in some cases, it may be part of your high school your grade for the course. Right. Some high schools do require it, so um, or really strongly encourage it. And and so I think it's it's part of it is if you've put all in in the work over the year. I think it's it might be useful to take that. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of it's it's sort of a, it shows that, and it might it definitely might get you some college credit. Um, but I think it's, you don't have to do it. And again, colleges are not, you don't have to officially submit those scores. You can self report them. Um, if they're, you know, if they're strong and that's, and that's where that's our advice that we give, because I do think that it it does show you've mastered, um, you know, the material and you've mastered the course, you know, not just the grade that you're getting in that, which is ultimately way more important, but also then you've, you've been able to show it on, on an exam as well.
1: Right. Exactly. And, um, You know, to that end, one of the things that I always tell my students, and in fact told my own son before he took his AP exam, was simply go in and see what happens. Uh, Now, certainly there are schools, like you said, where you need to take the exam, and it's part of earning your final grade. I have seen schools where they incorporate the score into the grade. I'm not sure what I think about that. It doesn't seem quite fair, because what if they grade your AP a little harshly? I don't know. I think that's tricky, Um, but... Uh, you know, if you're, I see no harm in simply going and taking the exam. And if it doesn't go well, you don't report the score. And if it does go well, awesome, then that's a bonus. It's kind of how I see it. Exactly. Exactly. So speaking of what do you report? What is your advice around reporting scores? Which scores would you report? Sure.
2: I think for the AP, it's, you know, it's on a scale of one to five. um, And fours and fives are usually my advice, because those are the scores that are likely going to grant get credit Mm -hmm. for, um, you know, for that, too. So I I feel like, you know, threes are, are, you know, I think a little marginal, I would probably hold those back in most in most subjects, too.
1: So, Yeah. 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 Uh, it is true that um, that's the exact advice that I give as well. Um, and it is certainly true that every once in a while, a college might ask, hey, you know, I noticed that you reported these scores. Did you take this exam or and if you didn't take the exam, perfectly fine to say I didn't take it. Um, right. Or did you take this exam and what did you get? And if you did and you had withheld that score and they're asking for it, I think you give it to them. Um, I have not seen that happen. Um, I will confess that I once did that once again, it was at, while I was at Penn and Penn, you know, having particularly, you know, just difficult to get in and a lot of really yeah. qualified applicants. And it was in an area that the student was planning to major in and had taken the AP and had not provided the score. And I knew that in committee, it was an engineering applicant. I knew that the engineering representative was going to say, well, what did she get in that AP BC yeah. class? And I couldn't say I don't know, so I had to call and ask for it, and the student predictably had not done well and had chosen to withhold it, but I think that was kind of a perfect storm of things, which is that the score that she withheld was directly related to her focus and but since I've been doing this work you know for 16 plus years I have never had anyone um, tell me oh my goodness I didn't report this score and the college has called me and asked for it so yeah I've never had that happen either and in, in, in almost
2: 20 years and and I honestly when I worked in admissions at Brandeis now not as selective as Penn mm-hmm, but still selective still selective um, you know I mean I, it, it wasn't it didn't raise a flag if I didn't see an AP score I don't think I ever really paid it but you know again if I saw four or five it just it corroborated. Yeah. Okay. I can see you got an A in AP English and and you got a five on the AP exam. It just, it just sort of added, you know, added some even more heft to, to that, um, to that grade in that
1: course. Exactly. And the yeah. only reason that actually I had noticed that the score wasn't there was because I saw that the student had taken the class as a junior mm-hmm. and I saw the grade and I knew, again, that this particular committee member was going to ask me about the score. And so that was what sent me on that. But otherwise, it wasn't something I was paying close attention to. When I saw the fours and fives, I was like, oh, this is great. This underscores what we already know. So to your point. Um, Any final thoughts about APIB before we wrap
2: up? I mean, I think it just it goes to the real importance that colleges are placing on your your challenge in your curriculum, you know, and Mm -hmm. I think that's the easiest way to do it. It does not mean, you know, that you take every single one that's offered. Again, the challenge not overwhelm is is really my mantra when I talk to students about, you know, making, you've got to find the right balance and what fits for you. And, you know, that maybe means, you know, maybe taking an AP in your senior year or or more depending on the schools that you're applying to. But yeah, definitely really looking
1: for that challenge. Yes, absolutely. I think great point, Um, but not overwhelming yourself, which is another great point that you made. So, Mm -hmm. all right, we are going to take a quick break and go to commercial. And when we come back, we are talking about saving for college and a timeline for those of you who may be interested in that so don't go away
0: when it's time to go through the college admissions process look to bright horizons college coach for ethical guidance and customized support our educators will get to know your students ambitions and talents help highlight hard-won achievements and create a plan for getting into a top choice school That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I am very excited, as I always am, to welcome my colleagues to the show. Today, that's Alex Bickford, who's a former financial aid officer at Southern New Hampshire University. Hi, Alex. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Um, Usually, we're talking about something related to paying for college, but today, I'm excited because we're talking about something that might have those listeners who still have time planning ahead for that moment. Um, so we're talking about saving for college today. Um, so I'm gonna throw out the 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 question of the hour, which is when? When do you start saving for yeah. college? <laughs> yeah.
3: Absolutely. So yeah, it, it, first this is a favorite topic of mine. I love this topic. I love when I can talk to families. It doesn't matter how old their children are uh, about mm-hmm. this topic. And so that would be the simple answer to your question uh, would be when you're able to. And mm-hmm. uh, so I always say to families who are looking to save for college is that there are a couple of key factors that I like to see uh, for a family to judge if they're able to start. Uh, so do you have any high interest debt? Do you have credit card debt? Do you have other personal loans out there that you uh, might need to pay off uh, to put yourself in a better position uh, to save for college? So that would be one thing. Are you saving for retirement in an adequate way? Or Are, are you going to be set up for your for your financial future down the line mm. because i guarantee if you ask your kids if they want to take care of you 30 years from now the answer is going to be <laughs> preferably no, no. <laughs> So if you are in a position where you are where you don't have high interest debt, you're paying down, and when you, you are in a position that you're saving for adequately for retirement, I think then's a good time for you to start looking at your budget overall and assessing really big uh, adjustments you can make if, if possible. Uh, but even the small adjustments are can be really, really huge. So mm-hmm. as far as timing, it's when you are able, certainly sooner the better, uh, but whenever you're able.
1: Well, with that in mind, I mean, is it ever too late? So let's say you have a student starting senior year of high school. Is that a time to be saving for college or?
3: Yes. Yes. Uh, This is what I always say. So if you're if you have a senior who have a person who's a senior in, in, Mm -hmm. in high school, right, going to college even this fall. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to pay? How are you going to pay for this fall? Even if you're going to use student loans, let's say, as, as a way to help bridge that gap, which I would say the vast majority of families out there do to some degree use student loans, well, then you're going to need to be in a position to assess how much you and how much the student can borrow for student loans. So for mm-hmm. families, a lot of times that is, well, how much can I afford in a monthly payment? Well, what better time to figure out how much you can afford in a monthly payment than using these six months before your child starts college and say, well, let's start adjusting that budget. Let's start making monthly payments to some kind of savings mechanism. And maybe I only have enough for books uh, for the first year. That's less than I need to borrow. Yes. Yeah. And it puts me in a great position to understand I can afford this in a monthly payment.
1: Right. Well, I love that advice. And I also, you know, just personal experience of less on the saving for college side, but just on the, you know, my son started working, one of the things that we did was opened up an IRA for him. And so he puts every week, he puts a third of his paycheck into his IRA. Now we're literally talking some weeks about $30 and other weeks, you know, it's maybe it's 50 or 60. But He's already saved something like $4,000 towards his retirement right. at the age, you know, he's going to be 18. It's amazing how much those little sums of right. money add up and can add up relatively quickly, too.
3: And, and then for him, and this is obviously a little little bit different topic. Off topic but slightly. The, the but compound yeah. interest is going to be huge uh, right. on that. So when he looks to retire 50 years from now, yes. uh, even if he stopped today, he, it would be, he would be amazed at how much that's going to turn into you know, 50 years from now. So right. thinking back, even if you only have 18 years to save for college, or even if you only have 18 months to save for college, right. uh, whether it's compound ishi- interest or cash flow, both of those could be hugely, hugely valuable.
1: Right. Well, and I'm kicking myself because I'm thinking, what if I had simply put $30 away every week mm-hmm. when he was born, the amount of money that I might have accumulated at, up to this point, when I thought that I didn't have any money to save. But what was that $18? Who knows what I spent that $18 on? Or the $30 on, right? It it is, you know, I think your points, obviously, your points are all excellent. You are the finance expert. I am definitely not. But, you know, you want to pay off those big things and get rid of those. But if you're doing that, and then you happen to have another $15, $10, Absolutely. and you can pop that into savings, you're also going to feel good, like, oh, I am saving, and no amount really is too small, I think. It, no, that's 100% true. And what I think that also adds to is, all right, so I'm not
3: able to save vast amount of money today, right? I can't put yep. away $500 a month today, but maybe I can do $15 a month, mm-hmm. uh, and then- Maybe a year from now, I get a raise, and mm-hmm. maybe I can make an adjustment, and maybe I get a tax refund, and maybe I can make an adjustment, uh, and maybe I have child care expenses at end, and I can make an adjustment. And so mm-hmm. those things that build over time, generally speaking, when you have a child at, at birth, you're not prepared to spend $500 a month. You just can't. Right. Right. so that that comes over time and building that and setting up that account and having it easily available is much easier than to go from 15 to 50 to a 100 then go from zero to 100 because you haven't had that account established yet right so my biggest thing is establish something now start putting away even if it's five dollars a month or ten dollars a month uh, and make those adjustments over time
1: Right, right. Exactly. Nowadays, you can get the the vehicle right on your phone. And so, you know, and you just, oh, this is really easy to do. He gets paid every Wednesday, he goes into the mobile app, and he does it. And it's a habit. And that's the other, I think, great thing about it's you're forming a habit. And to your point, as you have maybe more funds available to you, you're already in the habit. And then maybe that next month, you can say, you know, I think now I can up t- how much I'm giving by like right. 10 more dollars or 100 right. more dollars.
3: I didn't notice that $15. Maybe right. i notice $50.
1: Right, exactly. And if you right. do, then will you pull back the next right. month, right? Exactly.
3: right. Absolutely.
1: So, I love that idea. Um, I This is a really, my next question is, I think, something that I, it can hit us all. I mean, right now, the cost of a four years of college at a private institution can run higher than $300,000, right? Mm -hmm. That is a massive number. That's a home purchase. Um, That is, I think for many of us, just the the idea of ever having that much money um, to write a check for is is scary. Obviously, very few people write a check for $300,000. They pay for it in installments, they pay for it over time, but the the cost is so overwhelming. How right. do you how do you help families or what do you encourage them to think about so they don't get demoralized if they feel like the progress they're making towards saving yeah. for that is really slow?
3: So the first thing that I would say is that you're in the same boat as ninety five percent of the other people. Right. Yeah. There are I've talked to on my two hands the number of people in my career that have just been able to pay for college. Yeah. Uh, Does it doesn't happen usually. Uh, what I say is it's a three pronged approach, uh, whatever your portion is, and hopefully you're getting some financial assistance and some scholarships and you know, 90% of people who go to college don't pay full price. But for, for whatever your portion is that you need to cover, it's a portion through past income, which is mm-hmm. savings, a portion through your current income at the time. So that savings leads to cash flow that you have throughout college. Mm-hmm. A portion being through educational loans that you or your student or oftentimes both mm-hmm. uh, take on. And once again, that cash flow that you're saving leads to your ability to have buy power or borrowing power uh, mm-hmm. for the loans after college. So right. typically it's that 3 pronged approach. So I'd first say, whatever progress you have on this end is something you don't have to do on this end, right? Yes. So anything that you save now Uh, First of all, it's going to add up over time, going to put you in a position to be able to pay some cash as you get there, and also will put you in a position to borrow less later. So even if it's a relatively what you feel like is a nominal amount, those can make big gains over time. Uh, And I will tell you that uh, for the portion of that you save, the people who save for college pay on average two or three times less for college than the people who don't. Wow. And the reason is, is that compound interest. Mm-hmm. It's that compound interest compared to the interest you have to pay on the back end through student loans. So if you had to borrow $1,000, maybe you only need to save over time $800 to get to that 1000 because of interest. You borrow $1,000, you're going to pay off $1,500 or $2,000 right. over time because of interest. So it's more like paying yourself to save and putting yourself in a better position than paying the student loan lender that you borrow from later on uh, to lend you that money.
1: Right. Right. I, it's when you really, when you put it that way, like two to three times more, that is eye Um, and yet one of the things we do here, I know you hear, I don't hear it because I'm not doing, I'm not talking to people on the finance side, but sure. well, we're being penalized because we saved, right. Yeah. And we're not going to qualify for as much financial aid and that's wrong on two levels. And maybe, you know, we have a little bit of time. Maybe you could yeah. talk about the two ways that's wrong.
3: So it's, yeah, it's definitely wrong on two levels. The first level, let's just talk about financial aid. Let's talk about need-based financial aid. So need-based financial aid is primarily determined by income. Uh, It is uh, certainly your assets will play a role, but the role that your assets play is minute compared to the role that your income plays. So if you make $100,000, they may ask you to pay $16,000 towards the cost of college. If you save $100,000, they might ask you to pay $3,000 of that towards the college. Right, right. So it's typically like a five times lesser impact on financial aid, your savings compared to your income. So in general, when people uh, come to me and say, I don't qualify or I qualify for less than I think that I should, it's not because you save too much. It's generally because you make too much.
1: Right, right. Which, so, you know, like, yeah. so I love that. Like, you're definitely not harming yourself. And then the second reason that's a bad way to think about it is... Well, so,
3: yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was
1: just going to say is what you just said, right? Which is that you're going to, if you don't save, now yep. you probably have to take out loans. loans. And exactly. now you're going to pay more in, in interest.
3: So just, let's just use that family, that $100,000 example. And in, for some of our listeners, this hits, Since for some of the listeners are on either end of that spectrum, but that family making $100,000, let's say they had saved $100,000 over the course of time. So college for them, the college financial aid office is going to say, you can pay $20,000 a year because you can pay $16,000 from your income. And let's just say $4,000 a year from your savings. So you can pay a total of $20,000 a year. Well, you saved $100,000. Guess what? You are now prepared to pay for that eighty. dollars Yes, uh, and let's look at the family who didn't right. So they just make a hundred thousand, but they have zero in savings, and let's even say they have debt right. uh, on top of that. Well, so instead, that family has to pay sixteen thousand dollars a year. Uh, so they've got to pay sixty five thousand dollars, let's just say, for the cost of college. They don't have any money to do it, so right. they have to borrow that sixty five. And over the course of time, they're probably paying off one hundred and thirty on yeah. that. And for you to save a hundred, let's say let's say you even saved 80 to get to 100. So that's where that two or three times comes into play uh, because you've earned interest and that family on the other end is paying interest to get to the same end goal.
1: Right. Love it. It's earning interest versus paying interest. That's I think. Exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. All right. We have two more. Two. Well, at least one more thing I want to get yeah. to. What is? What about families with multiple children? How do you approach this or do you approach it differently than if you only have one child that you're going to put through college? Yeah. So
3: And I know that isn't necessarily the topic for today, but one thing to think about is where you're saving. So when you have multiple children choosing an education-specific option, usually you feel a little bit less pressure there because they're transferable. So if your oldest doesn't use it, your second will. So I'm not feeling like I'm putting my money in a place where I'm worried about what's going to happen to it if my children don't go to college. Right. When you have one child, you know, that child's choice could certainly be that, I'm not going to go to college or I'm going to get a scholarship or whatever the case may be. And so then you have a little bit more worry. So I would be a little bit more diligent in saying, Mm -hmm. where am I going to
4: save?
3: Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, as far as if you have multiple children and you're looking to save, my whole process is let's find out how to create a balance for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what is your goal? Is your goal to cover hundred percent of all, all three or however many there are. Okay. Then we can go about that approach is your goal to just cover the in-state tuition? Well, let's go about it that way. But we need to find some balance so you're not saving all the money for the oldest or the youngest. And anybody in between is getting left in between. Right. Uh, so sometimes that's, you know, contributing equal to, equally to their accounts. But it also depends on, you know, if you're starting with a high schooler and a middle schooler, uh, and they're a little bit different in age, you might have to front end the high schoolers a little bit more. So... It's about finding that balance and make, make sure you're doing the best to treat them equitably as possible.
1: Yeah. No, I love it. I think it's great advice um, because how many times you talk to a family where they've got it all saved up for one, the first one, yeah. but then they have no idea what they're going to do about students right. two, three, four, and so on.
3: Right. And if they're if they're saying, hey, listen, I'm going to take out student loans and I'm going to have less expenses because my kids are out of high school and uh, off to college, well, okay. And, and I'm okay with that if that's your plan. but for so many families, it's, well, we did this for the first one, but we can't do that for the second
1: one. Mm, yeah. And I
3: said, well, then, well, that's not that well. <laughs> you know, for me, as a parent, I'm saying, I, I couldn't do that. So no, yeah. whatever balance it is, and make sure you set those limits with your children, right? Here's mm-hmm. what we've got. Here's
1: what we can do. Here's how we're going to help. Uh, but we're doing this for everybody. right. Right. Same thing for everybody. Unless, of course, you want to have family fights and rifts over the next, like, 50 years. Yeah, you probably absolutely. want to try and do the same for everyone.
3: The best you can, certainly.
1: Exactly. Alex, thank you so much for joining today. I think yeah. and I hope that this was helpful and that people who are worried or stressed about saving for college had some ideas about things that they can do right away to kind of kickstart the process for themselves.
3: Just take that first step. You'll, put, you'll be in a much better position to take the next step.
1: Yes, absolutely. All right. Um, we are going to go to commercial. But when we come back, we're talking about what happens if you have decided you don't like your options and you want to reapply in the hopes that one of your top choices will accept you next year. Well, we have some thoughts and we're going to share them. Welcome back, everyone, to getting in a college coach conversation. We've been talking about saving for college, we've been talking about curriculum planning and AP and IB courses, but now it's the segment all of you seniors have been waiting for. Um, we want to talk about this whole idea of reapplying um, and joining me for that is my very seasoned colleague, Jen Simons, who is a former admissions officer at Tufts, Northeastern, Barnard, and Connecticut College. Uh, And she also happens to be a former school counselor. So I know she's had these conversations before. Hi, Jen.
4: Hi, it's great to see you, Beth.
1: You too. Um, All right. So we were chatting the other day about this a little bit of a phenomenon that we see every year, right? Which is a student gets their decisions back. And by the way, all of our students listening now who are seniors have gotten their decisions back um, and they're maybe not, they're disappointed and they didn't get their top choice or any of their top choices. And they are thinking that rather than take one of the options that they do have, they're going to sit it out and reapply. And I wanted to like, let's start there. What do you think about that in general?
4: Well, I mean, certainly I tell students all the time during the application process that nothing is forever. Nothing is written in stone. You have control over uh, what can seem like a very uncontrollable process. And so, you know, certainly this is the time where you can exercise that control that you have um, as you find yourself with a decision to make, or maybe you don't have a decision to make quite frankly um we hope that that doesn't happen but sometimes it does the first thing that I would really encourage students though um with a school counselor or someone that can help them is to assess the decisions they do have Mm -hmm. so this year um as you said I've, I've been doing this a very long time and I think you'll agree with me that this year felt um like, one of the most competitive years, um, mm-hmm. you know, and we could talk about what that could be due to in another segment, but really, um, I think a lot of students were disappointed, um, and not um, irrationally, do you, you know what I mean, like, yeah. thinking that they would get into places, I mean, of course, they're, you know, students, everybody has expectations, and and maybe, you know, you you reach too high, or whatever the case may be, um, but I think that in in many cases, students were sort of they must have been in the ballpark, right? There are a lot Mm -hmm. of wait lists um, Mm -hmm. more seemingly than ever. So basically before you sort of make a decision, you have to assess what your goals are. And if your goals are to get into the colleges that uh, denied you, um, you really have to look at those acceptance rates because there's very little potentially that can be done um, if a school is just not in your range, and again, we're we're talking about schools with six, seven, eight percent acceptance rates, but also schools, you know, depending on the students, with higher acceptance rates. So you really have to make an informed decision um, rather than say, "Well, I'm just going to reapply." Which sometimes students want to do
1: right, right. And I think to that end, you know, one of the things that comes to mind for me too is looking at your process. Was it a thoughtful process? Did you take the right amount of time to work on each application. Did you hit the deadlines that you needed to hit? Um, you know, for me, those bigger state schools with early action deadlines or rolling admissions, you need to hit those early deadlines. You need to be. You need your application to be in early. If you kind of dragged your feet and you were really late, like maybe there might be. You know, there might be an advantage to be gained by being more on top of things but if you if it was a perfectly executed process mm-hmm. basically you did everything that you sh- you're supposed to do in the time frame you were supposed to do it I, I, to me that is a really important moment as you say to assess you know w- what has really happened here and is there room for there to be a change for the decision to go differently mm-hmm. um, which is a tricky thing because, you know, we have a lot more perspective than the average student does. Um, And so, you know, I I don't know. What do you think about the strategy of reapplying rather than me hemming and hawing?
0: No, no, no. I
4: I mean, I think that it's definitely a good strategy. I mean, the first thing, of course, they're all different scenarios, but the first thing that I would have any student do, let's say you really didn't get any positive decisions or you're really unhappy. There are still colleges and universities that are accepting students. Um, And so this doesn't mean that they're not as strong. This doesn't mean, I mean, there are what is it over 3000 colleges in the U S and, you know, sometimes, You know, decisions get made and they don't have a class, whatever. So first thing I would do is look to see which colleges and universities are still accepting students. And also many large universities, speaking to your point about the rolling admission cycle, um, accept students for the spring. So Mm -hmm. that could be a a possible option as well without you even having to do a thing. You could reapply for the spring semester. Um, The other two sort of most common things that students mention or think about next are the option of taking a gap year Mm -hmm. um, and reapplying or uh, uh, going to um, a college somewhere, whether it's a community college or a four-year college, and then applying as a transfer student. And those are two very different paths. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to, you know, Taking a gap year for anyone that wants to defer admission for a year, let's say, is a very, very good option um, for discovering yourself, for having a job, for doing anything um, that you want to do to improve yourself. But for a student that isn't happy with their results, um, taking a gap year might enable them to beef up parts of their application that were not as strong. Again, this is where the assessment comes in. You have to right. know what your weaknesses are. Um, you. Also have to be careful during your gap year and not enroll in a community college or a college and university because then you're putting yourself into that second category, which is the transfer category. But let's say you you think to yourself, you know, one of my weaknesses I got a C in my fourth year of Spanish, and I really want to prove to them that this is something I can do and it's something I enjoy. Um, You know, going on an abroad program or organized or on your own to Spain and doing something that you put together can be very helpful and valuable. However, what I want to caution against with these programs, and this is important, this is a good reason why you have to talk to somebody, is that the deadlines might come up sooner for college admission than um, the amount of time that you've spent abroad in this case or wherever. Mm -hmm. So um, particularly for those early decision deadlines, as students might remember from this year or rolling, um, you know, they can happen even before you might leave for your, you know, your gap year or something like that. So you might not have enough Of your experiences under your belt to really make a difference in those early action, early decision, or rolling—you know—early pools. So that's just something to think about. I'll I'll pause for a second, Beth, and let you (laughs) let you say something.
1: Well, you know, I think um, I think also what's interesting about that is it kind of touches on this idea of what does it mean to reapply, right? I think for some students, I've had some students come to me and say, yeah, I'm just going to reapply to these schools and I really loved my essay, so I'm going to go with the same essay. And, you know, I mean, reapplying is... Crafting an entirely new application. And because the first one didn't work. Uh (laughs) So that it needs to be different, right? So you're looking at new essays. And to your point, if you're planning a gap year and you're thinking that you're going to have this really great experience that you're going to talk about in your applications, well, if you are a week into your gap year experience and you have to have a finished essay for applications, guess what, that's not helping, right? Mm -hmm. You also probably are gonna want different recommendation letters. You are probably going to uh, wanna be augmenting your list of activities. And so realistically, it is April of your senior year. What can you accomplish between now and when your first applications might be due as early as let's even say October? Because some of those early action deadlines might be as early as October 15th and rolling admissions might start as early as September 1st. The most
4: important thing for every student, whether you're reapplying, going to college, is making sure you finish on a strong a, a good note a solid note so really making sure that your senior year ends um the same way it began if, if it began in a strong way but basically you can't look at your senior year even if you're planning on reapplying but maybe especially if you're planning on reapplying as an opportunity to slack off so having said that that's like point number one but i think your point um is very well taken about the application has to be different that is really the most important thing you cannot be the same Applicant that applied and got waitlisted or denied. Although I would say, I'm going to just correct myself, there are cases that I've worked with students. I worked with a a very, very strong transfer this year who got uh, deferred um, from a university. And then got waitlisted from mm-hmm. a university. So she was in their pool from November all the way. And she actually stayed on the waitlist until June when they told her there wasn't a place for her. So she was part of that, you know, applicant right. pool for almost a year, you know, essentially. And so I, I think that you have a better chance potentially if you're in a situation like this, waitlisted or deferred, and you can show that you've applied before again, it's a different application. Your application wasn't strong enough. The applicant pool right. is probably only going to get stronger. But at least I think that if you can, if, if there's still a, a university or college that you really love that you are waitlisted at, that might be uh, definitely something you put on your application and could make your application uh, stronger in the sense that colleges like to know. That you're still interested in them in a significant way.
1: Yeah, and I would completely agree with that. And I would say there was a, I had an experience um, probably two years ago where I worked with a young woman who was a really strong student, and I think it was a combination of not great advice, but also she didn't her essays were not great. She wrote about, in my opinion, the wrong things. She didn't highlight some of the really unique and interesting things she had done, and so um, the approach that we took, well, partially, she really took a long, hard look at her list of colleges and was a lot more um, mature in her approach and and eliminated uh, some that she realized were kind of just there because of the name brand. But I also encouraged her and she did eliminate all of the schools who had denied her outright. Um, Because I just didn't think that even though there were missed opportunities, that they were great enough that it would... Warrant a school pulling out her old application, putting it with the new one, and that they were suddenly going to say, "Oh my goodness, what we what were we thinking?" So she focused on places where she had been waitlisted, and then also um, a couple of additional schools that she had been hanging out in the back of her mind, but that now she sort of felt like, "Yeah, these these make sense." Um, and then she also extended something really interesting that she had been doing um, that summer into the fall. So she was going to do a very expensive gap year program uh, year abroad. And instead, in talking to her and finding out what she was doing, my advice was, see if they will keep you on for another four or five months. Save your $45,000, which is how much that program was going to cost. Do this instead, which, oh, by the way, you're getting paid for. and. you know again we'll never know for sure if all of those which of those things or all of those decisions but i do believe they definitely impacted her positively she also made a much better strategic decision with her early chip right so she was she was in a position financially where they could afford early decision and whereas the previous year she had done single choice early action or restricted early action this time around she went with the early decision and that came through for her. And so she did a lot of different things that I think really bolstered her. But one of the big ones was that she got rid of the schools that had outright denied her and focused instead almost exclusively on the places that had given her a waitlist decision. So I'm with you on that. I think that is a really important um, piece.
4: And it's it's interesting to note the student I worked with, was actually a transfer student. So she did enroll someplace and, and she had credits to transfer. And so two different situations with good
1: results. Right. Exactly. Um, Anything, any other last bits of thoughts around, you know, this whole concept of, wow, I'm really unhappy. I'm just going to reapply any other steps that they should be thinking about or questions that they should be asking themselves. Well,
4: I I definitely think that, you know, this isn't the time for me to say bloom where you're planted. And, you know, if you don't love the schools that you're at, like, you know, think about why, like, or that you've been accepted to think about why. Um, I I think that it's going to be a very different process if you are not in a high school. I mean, people, students Mm -hmm. don't necessarily realize how much harder it is to apply when you are sort of on your own and maybe in a different country or, you know, that, that you don't have the sort of natural setting, but, in some ways the pressure is off because you also don't have all your friends um, applying with you and the competition level. Um, so it can be a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, ultimately you have to decide what your happiness level is, but you can't defer just so you know from a school that you've been admitted to and then reapply other places. Mm. Yes. So that comes up every year. You know, parents say, can, can my, my student, you know admi- you know, say, yes, I'm coming, take a gap year and apply? Absolutely not. You have to say no thank you to any affirmative decisions you've gotten and, you know, move ahead as if you're starting from scratch. And that's a good way to think about it. If I could leave them with one thing that based off of your point, you're almost starting from scratch because it needs to be a very different application.
1: Yes, I totally agree. Jen, thank you so much um, for joining us today. And thank you to all of my guests. Next week, Sally is here. She's hosting. Um, We're going to be talking about using Naviance, making the best use of that if that's a system your school uh, uses, athletic scholarships. We're going to have another story from our team, Um, this one from one of my colleagues who is a first-generation student and whose parents were immigrants, so added to an extra extra level of complication um, to her process although perhaps it added an extra lovely layer to her experience, so she's gonna tell us about that. Um, And don't forget, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific